You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This episode is part of a special series on human rights and the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at past responses to pandemics to guide our response to this current global crisis. Welcome to the Oxford Human Rights Hub Rights App podcast. I am Monica Rango, and we are doing a series of podcasts on COVID and human rights. Today, we have Luisa Caballas, our guest. Luisa has led the global portfolio on human rights and gender at UNAID since 2015, and she is currently the Director of Community Support, Social Justice and Inclusion. UNAID recently published a report on the lessons learned from the HIV pandemic and the intersection with human rights. It is so timely to have you here. Thanks for agreeing to be with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, as I said, UNAIDS just published a paper on the lessons learned from the HIV pandemic as a guide to the response to the current COVID-19 pandemic. I think that for a lot of people listening, it may seem like HIV and COVID-19 are quite different. Why is it helpful to look at the HIV pandemic for lessons in this current global health crisis? We put the paper and the guidance out there because it's critical to apply lessons from 40 years of, of response. And just to share some of the, the key lessons that can be applied uh, to COVID, but there are lessons also from, for example, the Ebola response. And I would start with one, which is central to a human rights-based approach, which is community participation, civil society engagement. In many occasions, the communities hold uh, the solutions to address the issues that affect them. That became uh, very clear with Ebola and also became very clear with uh, marginalized communities in the HIV response, key populations. In order to be effective, we needed to put them at the center and we needed to them to, to lead for the solutions. That's one key aspect of, of the lessons learned. But we also learned we need to combat all forms of stigma and discrimination that, that come in many manifestations. In COVID, we've seen xenophobia, right? Racism. Uh, so it's, it's also a reminder that in our responses and in government responses, non-discrimination uh, and non-stigmatizing uh, campaigns, attitudes have to be placed at the center. And, and, and just to, to mention another one is, of course, how do we make sure that we remove barriers so that people are able to protect their own health? And barriers around misinformation, right? That's one that comes uh, at the at front at center. But also, and I know we, we can talk and, and unpack this a little bit, um, one of the, the key areas where uh, UNAIDS and partners and communities have worked is at times of, of crisis, right? The, the, the natural impulse is to focus or to resort to extreme measures and at times are very strict and at times punitive and coercive measures. And we learned this from the AIDS response by using uh, or overusing criminal laws that then ended up further marginalizing and stigmatizing people. You, you mentioned several interesting points there, and, and particularly the, the tension of human rights and the adoption of policies to enforce certain behavior with the 
a public health objective. Could you, could you delve a little bit in, in, in this tension or if you see a tension to start with between public health objectives and human rights? A human rights-based approach uh, can seem intentional or antagonistic to uh, public health goals. And what I like to engage people in is that human rights allow you know, for limitations, right, of, of, of rights at times of crisis for, for justified reasons. And we have clear guidance, right, in international human rights standards around uh, the boundaries of such limitations. And that's where uh, we need to be clear, right, that if we allow for limitation or derogation of some rights, you know, they have to be, of course, public health emergency is a legitimate purpose. But we should be clear around the other requirements, right? We really need to uh, guide interventions around questioning, right, the, the proportionality of those measures to the aim, um, to the necessity in terms of are they evidence-informed? What is the evidence telling them? Um, very important around time-bound, right? Many of the measures we adopt at, at times of emergency then uh, stay in the books, you know, for example, in criminal law uh, uh, for decades, right? And are they non-discriminatory? So we, what we try to do is really ask uh, governments to push themselves, right? Not to just act. Um, we understand uh, in many occasions it's, you know, driven by, by that aim of protecting the public health of of, of their people, but without looking at the, the consequences of some of those measures. So what we demand of governments is really uh, let's unpack and make sure that those measures follow these requirements. This, of course, brings to the center the right to health and the notion that is a fundamental human right and that it should be guaranteed for everybody. In terms of context, uh, for some years, European nations have reduced their health system infrastructure, or at least it has not been expanded. Other regions like Africa have difficulty providing even basic health care. This raises a lot of important questions about the role of the state in guaranteeing everyone's individual right to health. Resource allocation also is a part of that. Some governments, like Ireland, decided to take over the private healthcare sector to provide public healthcare. But places like the U.S., um, their entire health system is based on, on, on private healthcare. Do you see in COVID uh, pandemic responses clarity on, on how the right to health should be in, uh, protected and guaranteed? All of our work in the HIV response uh, and, and the work led by governments and by community activists that really right, pushed through the courts, right, through legislators dem demanding more action, we really advocate to make sure that the right to the highest attainable standard of health you know, is considered and is a core a priority for every government. And you've rightly pointed out that um, this pandemic is really re revealing, right, the weaknesses uh, of, of many systems, right, even in, in the most um, developed countries. Uh, HIV, like COVID, right, reveal the fault lines in our societies, right, re reveal who really is, is, is left behind, right, um, 
in COVID, we, we have seen, and, and unfortunately, we'll continue to see who are left behind, right? Like the elderly, very affected, sometimes abandoned. Uh, what is going to happen in informal uh, settlements uh, when social spacing is not uh, possible? So the, 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 the pandemic reveals what are those um, cracks, right, in the systems, in the health system. And it also helps us understand and how these pandemics exacerbate those inequities and those inequities in access to healthcare services. But what I also like to say is that it's an opportunity, right, to rethink. Um, I think the Secretary General um, is going to, is pushing um, for a slogan or, or for an understanding that we, we should be building better, right? Re that our rebuilding efforts uh, as we emerge uh, hopefully soon from from this crisis will be, will have left uh, a rebuilding efforts that builds better and I do think that this applies to health. You you mentioned one key aspect of this pandemic and is inequality and and how poor people are definitely going to bear the brunt of the impact of this pandemic in a differential way because either they they live in informal settlements or or how you put it out is they cannot have the luxury of social distancing. And they are particularly vulnerable and unable to comply with some of the public health responses. How can governments be sensitive to these economic inequalities? Well, again, it's the weakness of social protection uh, systems, right? Uh, if, if people are living day to day, uh, if in, in many contexts people don't get uh, sick leave, if, uh, if people don't go outside to the streets, cannot sell their goods. Uh, absolutely, this is revealing sort of uh, how are we going to, uh, what are the, if, if for, if first of all, the immediate measures, right? Many countries are providing, whether it's cash transfers, right? Or scaling up the access of basic foodstuffs, right? For the poorest people, mobilizing to make sure that people have the basic uh, the food uh, uh, nutrition needs met, um, but again, and I think in this in this regard, you know, UN entities such as the World Food Program are playing a, an important role in in making sure that um, those poorest um, can have access to those services. But it again going to the how how can times of crisis remind us of 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 what we need to build um, to make sure that we're we're going to rebuild more equitable, and we're going to remove uh, the the inequalities that the sustainable development agenda is also promising. So as we rebuild, um, what are the social protection systems, right, that that can be put in place in the longer term? You also mentioned uh, women and the and the disparate impact of of the pandemic on on women. There's a clear rise in domestic violence, and care work has been shifted into the home, uh, which is an additional burden on, on women. Also, and our key question is access to reproductive and healthcare services. Do you see any uh, good examples of government responses dealing with with these issues right now? From where I sit, what we're trying to really promote at this point 
is supporting UN Women's efforts. Uh, they've played a critical role in providing guidance to countries around what are the immediate actions that should be taken. Uh, as you mentioned, to you know, there, there are issues around domestic violence, violence against women in the home, but also against uh, children that are rising. So what we're trying to do, we work in over 70 countries around the world, is send messages to our country offices to be who have a seat at the table, at a planning table, to make sure that one of the priorities is making sure that those supports, right, to prevent uh, violence and to uh, respond to it are adequately put in place uh, in the context of the response and hopefully can give a basis, right, where, where there haven't been uh, much services, uh, a basis for rebuild. And one of the, the areas I also want to, to touch upon is, um, I'll refer to HIV, but I also find the link in this to, to reproductive health services, which is our staff in the front lines are working with communities, you know, a, a, who need antiretroviral therapy and who in the in the context of quarantines, of uh, shelter in place measures, um, couldn't go out to their health facilities to get their refills of their treatments. Uh, the same should apply to services, reproductive health services that women need, whether it's contraception uh, or other for types of services that they would need uh, in, 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 in any situation, but that the lack of access can be exacerbated um, in times of crisis. And what we don't want to see happen is what unfortunately has started to happen, which is using uh, the COVID response um, as an excuse to put other measures in place. In Poland, uh, uh, for example, uh, COVID responses have also included, uh, I understand, increased penalties for HIV exposure and transmission. In, in Hungary, uh, there are other measures around curtailing access to some therapies for transgender women. We have also heard around other restrictions around uh, reproductive health uh, services. You mentioned there again uh, the response of criminal law. Um, UNAIDS has pushed against the criminalization of HIV transmission, and, and there are a lot of, of lessons that can be learned ab ab about the use of criminal law in, in, in any health situation. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? I think that, like other movements, um, we have learned that the state resorts to criminal law for several reasons, right? On HIV, it might be with the aim or, or one of the aims supposedly of protecting public health. And we have learned that that does not work. It Criminalization, overuse of criminal laws, further marginalizes communities. It does not serve a public health purpose. Uh, it does not uh, meet the aims it, it was created for. And it, it can be discriminatory. So what we we have learned is not just areas of criminal law related to HIV, but also to most marginalized communities. Um, for example, what what we call in, in, in HIV key populations, you know, people who use drugs, uh, sex workers, uh, transgender women, that uh, in many contexts are criminalized. Um, and what we have learned is that it can not only be discriminatory, but it actually uh, 
pushes communities underground and, and pushes communities uh, to the sidelines in ways in which they don't even seek access to healthcare because of fear of being punished or discriminated against. So one of our key lessons, again, is criminal law should be the last tool that governments resort to. And in contexts of sexuality, of reproduction, of HIV, we have learned that criminal law becomes a stigmatizing tool, a punishing tool that does not uh, achieve any public health goals. You mentioned here again attention in, in between. How do we learn from this pandemic and to rebuild from a better place uh, with the principle of, of equality? And how do, when things get back to normal, we don't maintain situations also that could be problematic for, for human rights, like, like the ones that you, you've talked about? What, what principles should we follow here in order to understand which are the things that we should keep and which are the things that should not be allowed? I think that any measure that is limiting rights clearly has to be time-bound and has to be revisited again and again and again by a body, whether it's, it's a, a court, uh, the judiciary has to review this. And I, I, I like to also give the, the example of uh, HIV-related travel restrictions. Again, at a time of panic, a government, uh, you know, parliaments very easily passed uh, laws, in many cases, uh, banning or expelling uh, people living with HIV that is still exist in many countries or banning travel by entry, denying entry to people living with HIV. We still face the consequences um, of those bans that were put in place decades ago and are still in place. And so this should be a wake-up call to see uh, what are the measures that we're putting into place and so that to make sure that if they make sense in, in a context of an emergency, a court of law is reviewing these measures to see if they're still necessary, if they're still proportionate, um, or they should be removed. We believe that oversight and accountability are critical um, as we as we look at, at the future. Accountability mechanisms and remedies for rights violations are, of course, at the center of the UNAIDS report. How can this be guaranteed during the crisis when most of the people, including those who work in the justice system, are quarantined and there might be restrictions of rights such as freedom of assembly and freedom of expression? COVID has turned all kinds of, uh, from businesses to education, to the judiciary, to services upside down. But I also think that, and of course, not to underestimate the challenges that maybe many uh, less resource governments would have, but as much as possible, I, I do think that um, this could be an opportunity to see how we remove uh, red tape that at times uh, is there unnecessarily and that this will uh, open the door for new ways of working and new ways of working even in the judiciary. I just think that everybody, every institution is adjusting and responding and I do think that we cannot hide on the, the challenges um, that COVID exposes to not try to not be even more creative, more innovative, 
to make sure that those core functions of civic engagement, uh, of those those principles of, of, of participation, but also the oversight and the accountability need to happen. And, and, and civil society and communities need to push around how that should happen, but we also need to be responsive and, and be creative about uh, how to make that happen. This brings again the point that you started with, which is participation. And it could be, it could be very helpful for you to, to explain a little bit more who should be participating, because it, it seems that it, the decisions around the, the health policy cannot and should not be only taken by, by government officials. And it cannot be an afterthought. I think that with Ebola, the leading experts on the ground would tell you that the 101 thing that they would push governments to do is engage the communities, engage the faith leaders, engage those closest to them um, to find the solutions. But then also, you know, from the AIDS response, we also uh, learned uh, and communities pushed to have a seat at the decision-making table. And our executive director at UNAIDS in, in, the, in her high-level engagement at the UN and with government officials, she's saying, we need the communities at the center, the, the patients' rights groups, which are the groups um, uh, that, that need to be uh, represented uh, in the decision-making table. Let's not forget that it's always uh, an afterthought. And one of the biggest lessons from the HIV response is we need to, to have them at the table. One of the challenges of the HIV response at, at some point was access to antiretrovirals. That has changed to a certain extent. Right now, what, what we're seeing is the lack of resources in intensive care and ventilators and unlimited and, and resources. How can public health and uh, hospitals deal with these limitations? That's the million-dollar question, right? But I think that one of the big challenges is around global solidarity as well. It's not just at, 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 at national level in terms of information sharing, right? Technology sharing, the resources. And it will be even, even more critical to, to have the, the international solidarity for when the pandemic starts hitting um, the poorest countries in, 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 in let's hope, this doesn't uh, get as bad as, as we know has gotten in other countries, we, we will feel, face challenges. And I do think that human rights, and again, reminds us that, and, and, it, and it is one of the seven takeaways in our paper, uh, on our guidance, that you know countries must work to support each other so that there's no country or no community left, really left behind. Can you share some examples maybe of, of challenges and success stories in implementing human rights-based approach to the healthcare across different jurisdictions? Maybe one of the things that come to mind is the, the, the release of, of prisoners that are being held for minor offenses. Again, any organization or institution fighting for criminal uh, or justice system reform, right, would call for... Uh, looking for alternatives to, to incarceration. Well, I think that this public health emergency has uh, pushed in an accelerated way, unfortunately because of a crisis, to 
to release right many of of of, of the incarcerated uh, populations. So I I do think that even if the crisis brought this up, you know what can we learn from this to build up in terms of of prison reform, right? Um, and 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 I think that the UN is is looking at potentially as at, at a statement, right? Calling on governments to to rethink uh, and, and use uh, this unfortunate crisis uh, to to release prisoners that will be at risk uh, if COVID um, really uh, breaks havoc in in these settings in, in many countries. Um, I also gave the example of on HIV in HIV, right? Millions of people, right, are relying on treatment, on access to their medicines every day to remain healthy. Uh, so a big effort in terms of um, accessibility of services has really to push governments to to change the regulations around how they dispense uh, medication. So our, our ask is there are so many areas of, of health, right, where we will need to make these medications available um, uh, to and accessible to to most marginalized communities. So the the push is how do we make this happen? There are also um, in terms of as we talk about solidarity, you know, groups emerging, creating uh, funds of support because people are lo losing their livelihoods, but also those most discriminated in society, right, are being um, either kicked out from their homes because they are gay, right, or transgender. Uh, and left on the streets. So I do think that we're seeing many forms of solidarity, but also of on the states also stepping up, knowing that their own people will be hungry. And so setting uh, some temporary shelters and, and giving the foodstuffs people need in this time of crisis. Is there anything that you would like to add in terms of, of the lessons learned and, and, the, and the recent UNAIDS guidance? I want to thank you for the for the invitation, and it's just to say that everyone has a role to play, right? I think from from activists to students, we're walking into our uncharted territory, right? The magnitude of the crisis, as Secretary General Guterres have said, we have we have not lived through such a crisis since World War II, right? So it's really uh, forcing us to 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 think in new ways to see how in this very unequal world, right, how can we all contribute to reimagining and rebuilding um, a, a better world? So let's not just live through this crisis um, and try to think that we'll go to as it was before, right? For those of us working in human rights, uh, working on women's rights, we're working to make sure that communities Uh, can lead based on their life, lived experiences and expertise. Let's all think of how we we build better and better for all. Thank you so much, Luisa. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Ullman. And this episode was produced and edited by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and hosted by Monica Arango-Alaya. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts. <laughs>